Well, as we begin this morning, I'd like to read a couple of verses uh, before we pray from the prophet Nahum. He says these words in the first chapter of Nahum. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Father, as we begin this year, 2003, for many of us, it's hard to even conceive of this uh, year, and yet we know that you have granted to us this day, and we look forward to this year, and we trust that each and every day we will take refuge in you, and we know that your Spirit looks upon us, your Spirit infills us if we are truly the children of God. And so, Lord, I pray that throughout the course of this year that lies before us, whatever it will hold for each of us, that you will be our strength, you will be our hope, that in you we will put our trust. And above all, Lord, we will allow you to work through us in good times and difficult times to manifest the glory of Christ. It is our desire to make a difference in this world, to be the light and the salt as Jesus uh, portrayed it for us in Matthew. And Lord, I ask that you will bless us here this morning in our study of your word as we continue to look at the life of this man, David, a man who has been greatly honored and yet greatly vilified, a man after your own heart. And so, Lord, I pray that you will strengthen our faith, give us insight, that your spirit will be our teacher. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. As is the case in the lives of all the great men and women of God, and you will have noticed this, life is not only filled with blessings from God, but life also happens to have a few trials and tribulations along the way. I'm sure you've noticed them. And David, of course, is a, is a prime example of this. If you can remember back to the first half of the book of 2 Samuel, You'll remember that it was a time in which we read of the glories of David. God had given him this great empire. In fact, everything inside these, uh, the darker red lines, this is the empire that God had given to David. An empire which included all of the surrounding countries, which today, of course, are very hostile to Israel. Of course, they were then too. But they were forced to, to submit to David's authority because he was a conquering king and he was empowered by the Lord God of Israel. He was, became a man of power. He became a man of wealth. He became a man of fame. But you'll notice we come into the second half of the book of uh, 2 Samuel and almost right away tribulation begins. And what we have been focusing on the last few Sundays has been the tribulation of the great rebellion led by his own son, Absalom. This man who, as far as we can tell from Scripture, was almost a clone of David, his father, in many ways. The only bad part was, of course, he was not a man of faith that his father was. What we see here is, is a man who raised up a mighty revolt and for a short time at least actually was able to successfully usurp the throne in Jerusalem for himself. And David fled his capital. And, and we read that flight up over the Mount of Olives and down the eastern side and into the, the, um, the valley of the Jordan River. 
and the events which transpired there, all of which give us insight into this, 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 the faith of this man, David, and also into human character as you run into uh, individuals like uh, Ziba, for example. You may remember him and, and others that encountered David along the way. David was forced to flee from his capital in Jerusalem here to the city of Manaim over here which is on the Jabbok. This is the Jabbok River right here, one of the tributaries to the Jordan. comes out of the central part of Gilead. And uh, there, about 15, 10, 15 miles up the valley of the Jabbok, was the small cities. It was a fortified city called Manaim, which means two camps. You remember that was where the camp of the angel of the Lord and the camp of, of Jacob himself had been, and Jacob wrestled with the Lord there that night, many, many hundreds of years before the event we are talking about here. While David was at Manaim, thousands of individuals came to, to join him there in his flight to, to give him military strength. But at the same time, Absalom was collecting a military force, which of course would turn out to be much larger than the one that David had. And so what you have is a situation in the 18th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel where Absalom, who is holding the throne in Jerusalem, launches an attack against his father at Manaim. The desire being, of course, to destroy his father, clear the way that he himself will rule in Jerusalem without threat of his father. So let's read in the 18th chapter, the first eight verses of the 18th chapter of 2 Samuel. Then David numbered the people who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the people, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. But the people said, You should not go out. For if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Now therefore it is better that you be ready to help us from the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. And the king charged Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. Then the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And the people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Civil war raged in Israel. Civil war, of course, down through the pages of history, there is really nothing worse than civil war. We know from our own history how tragic the civil war was in American history. It, it, it's still pointed out that we lost more Americans in the civil war than in all the other wars we have fought in our history combined. And so it is with civil war, because in the case of civil war, you're killing your own self off. <laughs> you know, brother against brother, father against son. You're massacring your own people, and so it is here. When Israel is surrounded by enemies, they're killing themselves off. It reminds me of one of the great reasons why the Roman Empire collapsed. 
Rome was still threatened by the barbarians in the north and barbarians in the east, or at least they called them barbarians. And then they were raging, there was a civil war raging within Rome. You know, army, Roman army fighting Roman army, killing off legionnaires right and left, weakening the forces to face the Germans in the north and the Parthians in the east and, you know, the Nubians in the south or whoever might be the threat of Rome. So civil war is a tragedy. It's a terrible thing uh, whenever it happens. And of course, it's not the only civil war in Israelite history. David, of course, had brilliant commanders. David had his mighty men. The greatest warriors in all of Israel were in his army. But Absalom had the much larger force. He literally had raised a force of men from the proverbial Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, the traditional borders of the heartland of Israel. He had raised an army from that whole area. It's very doubtful that he raised any men from Gilead on the east, however, because that area seemed to be loyal to David because David was in that area, probably one of the reasons he fled to that area. His home was Judah, and yet he couldn't stay in Judah. He had to flee over to the other side of the Jordan. And so from this whole region, Absalom raised tens of thousands of warriors that would follow his lead in attack on his father. Humanly speaking, the advantages were with Absalom. David was an older man. David was in retreat. Absalom was charismatic in many ways, and, and he had forces with him that were greatly more numerous than those with David. However, David had one factor upon which he would be dependent and which Absalom totally ignored, and that is, of course, God, Yahweh, Lord of Israel. David wanted to lead his men in the power of the Lord against his own son, Absalom. David, of course, had certain ambivalent feelings because he loved Absalom and, and he wanted to save Absalom, but he did want to put down the revolt. But, of course, his men refused to allow him to go because they didn't want David to be out there with the forces and even if they were to win for David somehow to be killed, and then the whole point of the battle would be gone. There are many, many instances of this in the pages of history. Probably the most famous is, of course, the death of Lord Nelson at Trafalgar. And when the news reached England that they had won the great victory at Trafalgar, but then the news was followed with the words that Nelson was dead, I mean, it just put the whole nation into sorrow. Most Englishmen would have rather had Nelson alive than to have lost the battle at Trafalgar. And so it was here on a much greater scale because this was their beloved king. And if he were dead, there would be no hope for the restoration of the Davidic empire. David acquiesced, fortunately, to his men. He knew wisdom when he heard it, and uh, so he decided he would stay. But he knew that Joab and Abishai, the sons of Zeruiah, as he refers to them, it's, it, it kind of reminds you of Jesus, you know, when he refers to James and John as the sons of thunder. <laughs> in the New Testament, how David refers to Joab and Abishai as the sons of Zerariah, and he often says, what am I going to do with you guys? You know, you've always got something that, that's going to put me in bad light here that you want to do. You're so rash. Well, they were. They were very pragmatic. Uh, they were men of action. David was a man of action too, but as king he had to be a little wiser and more careful. And so he told these two individuals, and Ittai as well, but Ittai he had greater faith in as being a man who would do as well. And, and, but he, he, remember, these are his cousins. 
So I think that's one of the reasons why Joab and Abishai thought they could get away with more things, because they were related to, to David. They were his first cousins. So he's kind of like, hey, David, you know, you're our buddy here, and, and uh, you know, you've got to listen to us and, and you know, give us a piece of the rule here. And so he warned them to bring back Absalom alive. He did it publicly in front of all of the people that were around there, hoping that as, as they were surrounded, it wasn't a private conversation. So all the others would hold Joab accountable for what happened. The site of the great battle between the forces of David and the forces of Absalom has been debated for centuries because the scripture simply says the battle occurred in the forest of Ephraim. The problem is the location of the forest of Ephraim. Today, when we travel to the Holy Land, we discover there aren't many forests in the Holy Land. Lots of rocks, but not too many trees. What trees there are? Mostly olive trees and some orange trees. Uh, what trees there are that exist there, what forests that do exist, have largely been planted within the last less than 100 years. Israel, the government of Israel, has had a program of trying to reforest many of the areas that have been deforested. It's been a naked land for a very long time in terms of lack of forestation. And of course you all know that lack of forest usually produces excessive erosion of the soil. And uh, so the land which flowed with milk and honey in the Old Testament times uh, only is productive today because of the Israelite agricultural ingenuity and what they've been able to do because the land was not very productive under Turkish administration, which existed all the way up until the end of World War I. The reality is that 3,000 years ago, the land was much more forested many more thickets and woodlands existed than exist there today. So, this is the scene that we have. Manaim is located over here in the tribal territory of Gad, in the region known as Gilead, on the Jabbok River. The region in which is called Ephraim is located on, was located on the other side of the Jordan in the region just north of the uh, Benjamite area. So up in here where you see SR in Israel, in, in this region in here. That was the territory of the tribe of Gad, uh, I'm sorry, of Ephraim. So the question is, was the forest of Ephraim in Gad or Ephraim? Well, you, know, you remember uh, Groucho Marx's old famous question, that always came up for the persons who had failed to, to achieve money, and he always said, well, one last chance, if you earn some money, give you 50 bucks, you can tell me who's buried in Grant's tomb, <laughs> you know. Um, Lincoln? <laughs> and so you think, forest of Ephraim would seemingly probably be in Ephraim rather than Gad. Wouldn't it be the forest of Gad if they were in Gad rather than, you know. but, but that's not at all certain. And the reason is because in the 17th chapter, of 2 Samuel, verses 24 and 26, it tells us that Absalom gathered his forces and that he crossed the, the Jordan into Gilead and camped there. So it seems that Absalom's forces are on the east side. So if you look at Bible atlases today, you will almost always find that right up in this region, here's Manim, northwest of Manim, right up at, right where the little red dot is jerking around there, that that is called the forest of Ephraim in atlases. 
Now, we, you can't prove that it was called the forest of Ephraim in the day we're talking about. But because the logistics and everything that's stated in 2 Samuel seems to lead to the battle occurring here, that has been called the forest of Ephraim. Now today, if you look at it, there aren't really any forests there. It's just it's an escarpment, uh, flattens off to, to a plateau on the top. It's, it's relatively free of, of tall vegetation, mostly grass. Whereas, of course, in the hills of the uh, tribal region of Ephraim, the forests there certainly were called the forests of Ephraim. So that is where the question lies. Some scholars say there's so much in the scripture to indicate the battle occurred here that must have been for some reason that uh, that area had gotten the name Forest of Ephraim. It's kind of like every once in a while you hear about somebody graduating from California State University and you find out it's in Pennsylvania. You know, there's a California State University in Pennsylvania. There's an Indiana State University in Pennsylvania. So you think, and so to have a forest name for some other place in a different place is, is not illogical. So here's the battle. The battle occurs. Now, I should give you the other side. Of the, the other side of the coin is that some scholars say what happened is there were some skirmishes here, and Absalom decided that he wasn't getting the better of the situation, so he went back to the other side into the hill country of Ephraim to regroup and to make a last stand against the assault of the forces of David. And I tend to lean with that because of the statements that are made about the runners who carry the news of the victory to David. Because it, it, when it says that uh, the Cushite ran, we'll get to this in a minute, the Cushite ran and Ahimeaz ran, it says Ahimeaz got there fi uh, first because he took the way of the plain, the plain. Well, the only plain is really the valley of the Jordan River. And if the battle occurred up here, Going to man name, you weren't going to run down here and down here and up there. You'd run straight across here. I mean, it's kind of up and down. It's ragged, but, you know, it just makes more sense that probably the battle was fought over here and they had to run across the plain of the Jordan to get up here to, to man name. That, that seems logical. But whatever the case is, wherever the battle was fought, not too many miles difference between the two places, it seems that David's army was on the offensive. The smaller army took it to the larger army. And you remember uh, that David's forces were, were grouped in uh, hundreds and thousands. Uh, what should we call them? Uh, regiments and battalions or, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them. And there were three leaders, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. So it's most logical that the attack was three-pronged, like a trident, and that each of those men led a portion of the army, not totally independent, because Joab had overall command. He was David, supreme commander of all troops. But, but that the three operated quasi-independently in their assault upon Absalom's force. That seems to be what happens here. Setting aside the God factor, David did have certain advantages. First of all, the core of his army was made up of his mighty men. Now later in other passages of scripture, when you read about these mighty men, you discover that some of these mighty men, for example, single-handedly killed 200 enemies in a battle, or took on a giant as big as Goliath and killed him. So these were, these were truly champions that we're, we're talking about here. 
And so he has this core of mighty men. He has many men around him who are veterans of many of David's campaigns. Yeah, God gave him this empire that you see here. But God didn't hand it to him in the silver platter. He fought for it. And David defeated these many enemies that you see here, especially the Syrians. Aram means Syrians. And the numerous groups of Syrians who live all through this, this area in here. He, he fought battles. And, and so he had men who were, had been with him and were veterans of many wars. And these were individuals that were part of this army. Secondly, he had brilliant commanders. Whatever you think of Joab, whatever we think of, of Abishai, they were brilliant and capable commanders of men. And then thirdly, I think that Absalom's men were a bit fearful because they knew they were going against the mighty men of David. And they also certainly had some question in their mind, is this really the thing I should be doing? Should I really be fighting for this young punk? Well, you know, Absalom, of course, wasn't that young anymore. He was you know, probably may have been as old as 40. Really, really ancient, right? It's <laughs> still pretty young, yeah. As the years go by, 40 gets looking more and more youthful. <laughs> That's right. 40-year-olds begin to look like mere children to me after a while. <laughs> I shouldn't say mere, uh, as, as children. Should they be fighting against their legendary king? Should they be fighting against the man who had God's anointing? I think some were beginning to doubt, and they may not have fought with all that intensity as a result. Well, David's advantages, or the advantages of his forces, soon became evident because what we have as we look at this passage is that within one day, Absalom's forces were overwhelmed, and the scripture tells us 20,000 men were slain. 20,000. That's a lot of people. And what is interesting about this is we're told that his army was routed. They fled in utter horror. They, they were terrified. They, they fled so precipitously that the scripture tells us that the forest, the countryside, took more lives than the sword did. Now think about that. You have to be too, pretty terrified to be running so fast and uh, without, you know, pell-mell to kill yourself. You know, run into a tree branch and knock your brains out or fall over a cliff or whatever uh, was happening. But the forest, it says, devoured more than the sword did. I think there's a God factor, of course, in that. Let's read on at verse 9 of 2 Samuel 18. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. For Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under a thick, the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept right on a-going. Whoever said a mule was stupid, you know. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Hab Absalom hanging in an oak. <laughs> then Joab said to the man who told him, Now behold, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground, and I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt? And the man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, 
and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Then Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And the and ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. How terrible was this rout? How complete was this rout of Absalom's army? Well, it was so complete that Absalom was all alone. He was all by himself. His good friends, his bodyguard, anybody else he might have had, had all fled pell-mell, and here he was alone on his mule riding through the trees, riding through the forest. There he encountered David's men. Now, of course, we all understand that servant is often the word used, but of course, what we have here are soldiers. These are warriors, men in the army of David. In his headlong flight, not meant to be a, a pun here, but in his headlong flight through the forest, the mule, now I don't know if you've ever done much horse riding or anything like that, but I've had horses that I've been on that they didn't pay much attention to the fact <laughs> that my on, being on his back was, was taller than what he was able to get under. <laughs> the mule went under some of the low-lying branches of a terebinth. The terebinth is the actual tree. It's, it seems to be somewhat like an oak tree. If you know uh, your, your climatology and your vegetation, you know that the climate of Central California is the same as the climate of Israel and the types of crops that grow and the types of plants that grow are the same. And, and so we call them oaks here. I, I, I don't know that the terebinth is a member of the family Quercus, which is the, big, the major oak family, but it's a similar kind of tree, built very similar in, in appearance, with a lot of low-hanging branches here. And so here the mule rides under the tree, and the scripture says that Absalom got caught by his head, and and, of course, we assume also by his big hair. <laughs> Remember, Absalom had big hair. <laughs> if it, especially if it hadn't been a while since he'd had a haircut. Remember, he had, he had a lot of hair on his head. He was really uh, thought highly of, partly because of his hair. And, but anyway, he was caught so freely, I, I mean, so tightly, that he couldn't free himself. Now, the question is, was he even conscious? He might have been knocked unconscious because the scripture does not say at all that he pled for help or cried out. It, you know, it says nothing about him except he's hanging in the tree. So it's very possible that, uh, I, I know, you know, if a mule is riding and you get your he head wedged into a branch, it probably is, it takes a pretty good clout. So it's very well possible that he was um, knocked out as well. Well, one of the warriors of David saw him hanging there. Probably several of the warriors, because it is a plural word, servants. And so what happened was some of them stayed to watch and make sure nobody freed him or he couldn't get loose, while Run ran back to Joab to tell him we have caught Absalom. And of course, the, the, the runner expected Joab to say, well, get him down and bring him to me, tie him, and, and we'll take him back to his father as a captive. Joab's reaction to the messenger who brought him the word that he saw jo uh, Absalom hanging in the tree. It's classic Joab. You dummy. You saw Absalom hanging helplessly in the tree and you didn't immediately kill him. What kind of a soldier are you? Joab said, if you had killed him, I would have given you 10 pieces of silver, meaning 10 shekels of silver, 
a shekel was approximately the value of one sheep, I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. Now, this isn't just any ordinary belt. This is the belt that you put the sword in. You know, it's, it's, it's the symbol of warriorship, something that, that goes on and on in history and during the medieval European history. You were, you were defined by being a belted knight. You had the, the belt in which was this, the special sword that was carried by the medieval knight. Medieval knights didn't just carry Saturday night specials, you know. They carried swords that had relics in them, holy relics that made them sort of Excalibur kind of weapons, you know, that uh, they, they carried with them. And so this, this would have been probably a special belt that, that indicated he was a superior warrior because he had done this great deed. What's interesting is the warrior doesn't say, oh, I blew it. He says, no thanks. I wouldn't have done it even if you had given me ten, well, actually a thousand pieces of silver. You know, that would have bought a whole herd of sheep. He said, I wouldn't have done it even if you had offered me that. He said, because if I had killed Absalom and the word had gotten back to the king, and the parenthetical statement is the king always hears everything, I'd have been a dead man. So what good would the money have done me? And as for you, Joab, I don't think he stuck his finger in his commander's face, but, but he stood to his face and said, but as for you, if I had done this and I got in trouble with the king, you wouldn't have stood up for me. It says, it says in the scripture, you would have stood aloof. You would have said, oh, I don't know the guy. I don't know. He's, he's in Abishai's regiment. He's not in mine, you know, or something to free himself from any guilt in the whole matter. I mean, this guy knew what kind of a person Joab really was. Joab was tough. Joab was strong, Joab was decisive, Joab was pragmatic, and Joab didn't care what the king thought. He was going to do what he thought was best. Well, Joab's response is, oh, I've got no more time to talk with you. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, that's the truth, but I'm not going to let you know that. And it says he grabbed three spears, three darts, three javelins, and he went to where Joab uh, uh, where the Absalom was hanging, and it says he thrust the three spears, even seemingly without a second thought. Just walked up, there he is, <clears throat> you know, stuck him in there. And then his ten armor bearers, Joab had ten armor bearers, must have been a big man, were allowed to finish Absalom off. Imagine hanging in a tree by your head, awake or not awake, totally unable to defend yourself as people made a pincushion out of you. Absalom was dead. His forces were routed. And so Joab decided further pursuit is unnecessary. There's no point in chasing these people and trying to kill any more of them. We may need them someday. And therefore he sounded recall, blew on the shofar to recall the troops. And then they buried Absalom. They buried him under a heap of stones. Says they threw him in a deep pit and piled stones on top of him there in the forest of Ephraim. Brad? Unusual means he was of royal blood, wouldn't they have taken him back? Wouldn't that have been the normal procedure? So that was just like one thing on top of another. Joab was just, okay. Right. Joab was deciding that this man deserved no further acclaim, that there should be no honor accorded him. He was a rebel. And I think Joab's decision, now Joab was not much of a man of scripture. God didn't play much of a role in Joab's life. But he certainly knew, and let me read the passage to you from the 21st chapter of Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy 21 verse 18 says this, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, who will not obey his father or his mother, and, uh, and when they chastise them, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of this city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear of it and fear. Don't ever say capital punishment is not a deterrent. God did not invoke this for no purpose at all. They shall hear of it and fear. Pile of stones. And so I think what we've got here is Joab saying, this is a rebel. This is what he deserves. Even though he didn't, wasn't killed by stoning, we're going to pile stones on him. And so they piled the stones there on top of his grave. And this, of course, would also, I mean, it wouldn't prohibit David from maybe saying, I want him exhumed and brought into town. But David does not do that. David accepts it as fait accompli and allows it to stand as it was. The Israelites who survived the battle ran to their homes, every man to his own tent. And you know that as they dwelt in their tents and thought about the situation, they were very nervous, they were very anxious. They knew that David had every right to bring retribution on all those that had fought against him. But they hoped for clemency. I don't know if you know the story of um, Charles Stewart, Charles Edward Stewart. Um, Charles Edward Stewart was the son of James II of England. And he was the grandson of James II of England. And in the middle of the 18th century, he invaded Scotland with the purpose of putting his father on the throne of Scotland and maybe even of England. And so he invaded. The English were able to repel the rebellion. And the reason he thought he could get away with it, England was locked in a major European war at the time. And many British troops were on the continent. But, but the British were able to drive him back, and there was the great Battle of Culloden. Some of you may have heard of it, which was fought in 1745 uh, up near Inverness in Scotland. After the battle, the English systematically went through all of the highlands looking for every young man who might have participated in that rebellion to kill him. And that's what precipitated the great migration of Scots to the colonies. And some of you with Scottish ancestry, hold up your hands, <laughs> may be here because of that. So it's not uncommon in history for revenge to be taken on defeated soldiers by them being hunted down and slain even after they have fled and, and, and even gone home. But they were hoping for clemency, which of course is what they will get from David. What's really interesting about this is, as we read along here, is David does something very you know, what, what you might consider extraordinary. And that is, when this is all over, he's going to offer the co commander-in-chiefship of his whole army to the commander of Absalom's army to replace Joab. Not asking Joab if it was okay, of course. And that's because he'd had enough of Joab. Now, it won't happen, 
I mean, it won't last because Joab takes care of it. Joab was a man of action. <laughs> but that's what David would do. The pile of stones that rose over the grave of Absalom reminded the author of the irony of the fact that Absalom had raised a pillar as a memorial to himself. He had built a tower for himself. And he said it was because he had no sons. Well, we know from the 14th chapter of 2 Samuel that Absalom had three sons. But the scripture nowhere gives their names. Usually, if that happens, it means they never reach maturity, that they have died in youth. So Absalom's sons had obviously predeceased him, and so in his own honor, he builds a memorial to, to be remembered by the people. And the author thinks about that when, when he describes this pile of stones that has been put over the top of Absalom's grave. Now, did Absalom build an obelisk, a column? What exactly Absalom built, we don't know, because the Hebrew word here can be used for almost any kind of a pile of, of rocks that have been raised up in almost any shape. All we know is that the scripture tells us that this memorial, this, this column, was built in the valley of the king, or the king's valley. Now, the king's valley is mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. Now, you remember in Genesis chapter 14, you've got the battle between Abraham and Chedorlaomer and the kings that had been with him who had captured Lot from Sodom and run off with him. And Abraham had overtaken them and recovered Lot. Well, let me read these words from Genesis 14, 17. After Abraham's defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveth, that is, the king's valley. So the king's valley was at Jerusalem. And the king's valley was either the Kedron or the Hinnom Valley. The Kedron Valley is the valley that runs to the east of the city. The Hinnom is the one that runs mostly along the south side of the city of Jerusalem. What is interesting is, according to Josephus, the King's Valley was located about a quarter of a mile outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that in the Kadron Valley today, going up down from Jerusalem and then up on the other side onto the Mount of Olives, there's a large cemetery. And at the very base of that cemetery are three tombs. One of those tombs, the very first one that you come to if you're going from north to south on the left-hand side of the road, is called the Tomb of Absalom. It's called the Tomb of Absalom. It isn't the Tomb of Absalom, but that's what it's called. It isn't the tomb of Absalom because it doesn't date from the days of Absalom. It ha it's a Hellenistic structure. It's, the columns are, uh, on it are Ionic columns. Uh, they, they date from the late Greek period. And so they may have been, it may have been carved and, and built as late as the, uh, it's actually carved right out of the rock. It's not a structure they built, they carved it out of a cliff and made it freeform from a cliff. It, it could have been as late as the time of Herod. Herod the Great, so almost into Jesus' day. But during the intertestamental period, these tombs were carved. 
And so if you go there and you stand on the wall, you go down the valley, you, you can see the tomb of Absalom here. It isn't that, but it reminds you of this passage, that Absalom built a column for himself there, in probably in the Cadron Valley, where it's, if it stands anywhere near where he built that column, we don't know. But it's interesting to know that that feature still stands there today. Well, the victory is David's. But David doesn't know it because he's at Mayanaim. So the next passage, which we'll look at next week, deals, first of all, with two individuals who are sent with a message to report to David. And why two were sent is, is interesting. And, of course, David's reaction is... is um, some ways to be expected, in other ways maybe unexpected.